Today's reading is from John chapter 1, verses 19 to 34. Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent the priests and the Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you a prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said to him, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now some of the Pharisees who had been sent to sent questioned him, why do you baptise if you are not the Christ? Or Elijah, or the prophet? I baptise with water, John replied. But among you stands one who you do not know. He is one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany, on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptising. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man comes after me, who has surpassed me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptising with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known except that the one who sent me to baptise with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptise with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. May God bless to us the reading of his holy word. Lord God, we thank you this morning for your continued love and care. We thank you for the great length that you have gone to, to make us your own. And so Lord, we pray this morning as we read more about the Lord Jesus, the word of God made flesh. We pray that you would help us see him, to recognise him, but most importantly, respond showing that we know who he is. Help us to see that he is the greatest of all time and is worthy of everything that we have in worship of him. So we pray that you would do that work in us this morning for the glory of our Lord Jesus. Amen. I want to begin this morning by talking about goats, but not the animals. I'm talking about the quest to find the greatest of all time. You see, ever since Muhammad Ali, with the media, and now particularly social media, has had this bit of obsession with trying to find the goat, the greatest of all time. And so rightly, Muhammad Ali has been recognised as the greatest boxer of all time, although it's in dispute these days. Michael Jordan, the greatest basketballer of all time. Serena Williams, the greatest tennis player of all time. Lance Armstrong was the greatest cyclist of all time until he had his goat hood spectacularly removed when it was discovered that he was just a kid on steroids. 
Even the Australian cricket team has its own goat, Nathan Lyon, the greatest Australian off-spinner of all time, which kind of really diminishes the glory, but he'll claim it. We call him the goat. But you see, actually, all of these goats, they come with qualifiers, don't they? They're either the greatest boxer or greatest basketball. They're great in their field, but they're not great in every field. Well, friends, today we come to hear from someone that Jesus calls the greatest person of all time. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Now, that comes with its own qualifier, but among those born of women really doesn't rule too many people out, I don't think. So it's a big claim that Jesus makes about John the Baptist. I hope it surprises you a little bit. It should surprise you. Because it's firstly surprising when you think about who said it. Jesus says there is no one greater than John. Jesus is himself pretty great, I think you would agree. That's surprising. But there's a second reason it should surprise you, which is, if John is so great, why don't we give him more attention? The Gospel writers knew that he was a big deal. Only Matthew and Luke tell us about how Jesus was born, but all four of the Gospel authors tell us about John the Baptist. Clearly, he's a big deal to the Gospel authors. He was actually a big deal to historians. I didn't learn this until this week, but outside of the Bible, we have more historical evidence for John the Baptist than we do for Jesus. Now, we have a lot of outside of the Bible evidence for Jesus, but we have even more for John. The Gospel writers knew he was a big deal. The historians knew he was a big deal. And yet, I don't imagine that any of you would say that John the Baptist has had much of an impact on your life. What is it that we're missing about John? Well, brothers and sisters, today as we consider this passage, we're going to see that the thing that makes John so great is that his whole life, his whole being, everything that he was, everything that he did, was focused on the one who is greater. And when we see that, we'll see how we too can become great. So we're going to consider those verses that uh, Jeff read from us from John chapter 1. Uh, you'll remember if you've been with us for the past two weeks, we've been looking at the prologue to John, where John, the, the author, the other John, the one who's writing all this, he tells us who Jesus is at the beginning. He wants to make sure, before you even read any of the events of Jesus' life, that you understand that he is a big deal, that he is the eternal God, the creator of all things the source of light and life. Fully God become fully man. He is the word become flesh. John wants to make sure you get that as you read the Jesus story. But before he tells us any details of Jesus' life, he wants to tell us about John the Baptist. Now, if you've got your Bible open, you'll remember back in verse 6, we already met John. The author tells us that John was sent from God that he came as a witness to testify about Jesus, which is another way of saying that he was a prophet. He was a messenger from God. 
Now, in the Old Testament, there were lots of prophets. In fact, all the books in your Old Testament from Isaiah onwards in the Old Testament are the words of God's prophets. But the people of God, the Jewish people, they had not had a prophet come to them at this point for 400 years. 400 years of silence. 400 years without hearing God's voice. And then all of a sudden, a man appears in the wilderness, preaching a message of repentance, just like the Old Testament prophets did, even wearing the same sort of clothing that the Old Testament prophets wore, which was camel's hair, so pretty distinctive. Jewish people are excited by this arrival of John the Baptist. They can see that something big is happening. And so people are flocking to see John. They want to know who he is, what he has to say. They're coming from all over. John is a first century celebrity. People are excited. God is doing something big and they want to know what's it going to be. What's God doing? Could this be the Messiah? The one that the other prophets had said would come. Could this be the one to rule God's people? the one to restore the kingdom of Israel. Could John be the chosen one? And so, with all this excitement, all this anticipation, the religious leaders, they send some people out to meet with John to find out who he is. And so in verse 19, we see the very first thing John tells them. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Verse 20, he did not fail to confess. He confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. Okay, they've had their hopes dashed a little bit. He's not the chosen one. He's very, very clear about that. So they ask him another question. Are you Elijah? Because you see... The very last prophet that God had sent to Israel 400 years ago was Malachi. And if you actually look back in your Bibles, the very last page of the Old Testament, you'll find the very last prophecy from Malachi. So the very last thing that God has said through his prophets, Malachi 4 verse 5, and it says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So you see, there is an expectation that Elijah would return. And when Elijah returned, that means the, the day of the Lord, the, the, the inauguration of the kingdom was about to happen. And so they ask, are you Elijah? And John says, I'm not Elijah. I'm not the return of the prophet. And so they ask, are you the prophet? In Deuteronomy 18, Moses says that one day the God will raise up a prophet like me from among the fellow Israelites. People have been looking forward to the prophet, the capital P prophet. Maybe John is this one. And John says, I'm not. And so at this point, the priests and the Levites, they're getting frustrated. They go, well, who are you? Are you the Messiah? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Are you the one nation candidate for the seat of Hughes? Maybe. No, he's not. Finally, they said in verse 22, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And what does John say? 
I'm just a voice. A nameless voice. He says, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. Now, friends, if you want to know what humility is, there it is. This man is huge. He has people flocking from all over to see him. He has his own disciples, people who just follow him. He's huge. He's a first century celebrity. If he lived in our day, he would already have a series on Netflix. John is, Jesus calls him the greatest person to ever live. But when the religious leaders ask John who he is, he doesn't draw attention to himself. You know what he says? I'm just a voice. I'm just the herald. I'm just the one who announces the arrival of someone greater. John's testimony to the religious leaders is, don't look at me, I'm not the one you're looking for. He is humble. And yet his answer is really profound. Because as John, the author, highlights for us in verse 23, John the Baptist's answer are words quoted from Isaiah the prophet. It comes from Isaiah 40. And Isaiah 40 is the first chapter in a 26-chapter section of Isaiah which is all about the future hope of the people of God. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah, they're not really good news. It's all about God's judgment on God's people. Isaiah is prophesying about the exile that's going to happen. But then in chapter 40, the focus shifts. It actually looks beyond the end of the exile. And so in Isaiah 40, verse 1... Isaiah prophesies this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert, a highway for our God. You see, in Isaiah 40, God offers his people a glimmer of hope beyond judgment. He offers them the hope of a return from the exile, the hope of coming back to Jerusalem, to their homeland. But as Isaiah continues to prophesy throughout these 26 chapters, well, The hope gets bigger. It just keeps growing and growing and growing. It starts off with a hope of returning to a physical city where you would have your own king ruling over you. But as it progresses, it looks forward to not just returning to a city, but returning to a new creation where everything is made right. Isaiah prophesies not just about having an earthly king rule over you, but having a forever king, a king who is never, ever taken off the throne. And so what we have here in John's humble answer, where he identifies himself as the voice calling in the wilderness, it's actually a claim that God is about to begin the greatest restoration project ever seen. It's a humble answer, but it's a profoundly huge answer. John is saying God is about to bring his people with him into his forever kingdom. And so when the religious leaders come wanting to know who John is, John answers by saying, I'm not the one you need to know. Don't look at me. 
Look at him. And and so in verse 29, that's exactly what John does. He sees Jesus coming towards him and he says, look at him. He is the one you want. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. He says, I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing, the reason I exist was that he might be revealed to Israel. John says, this is the one you need to know. Not me. I'm just a voice. He is the hope. This is the one God has sent. This is the one who will usher in the forever kingdom of God. He calls him the Lamb of God, which it's actually kind of tricky to know what he was referring to. Is he saying he's the Passover lamb that, uh, that was offered, so that, you know, that died so that you didn't have to die? Is he saying he's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who was led like a lamb to the slaughter so that by his wounds we might be healed? It's possible that he's actually kind of gathering all these sort of Old Testament images and saying this is the fulfillment of all of them. He's the lamb of God, a gift from God. He takes away the sin, not just of Israel, but of the whole world. He is the one who offers life and salvation to everyone, regardless of who you are or what you have done. John says to the religious leaders who questioned him, don't look at me, look at him. Look at him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look at him, the one on whom the Holy Spirit came and remained so that he might be able to distribute it to his people. Look at him, the one who is bringing about the great restoration of this world. Where broken and sinful people are offered new lives in relationship with God John says to the religious leaders, look at him. And friends, he says the same to you today. It's a message we need to hear because most of us spend our lives looking at ourselves, thinking about ourselves, worrying about ourselves. Now just think about this for a moment. How often do you find yourself sucked into that little delusion that tells us that life is about you? You see, we live in a world that everyone and everything, everything from the food we eat to the products we consume to the work we do, even to the relationships that we choose, we're led into this idea that all of those things are actually about you getting what you want. Now, it's completely self-centered, and yet we justify it by the fact that everyone is like this. We're all like this. I am. I am so self-centered. I spend 90% of each day thinking about myself, maybe, maybe 10%. That's probably being generous. Now, and there's two massive problems with that, right? You, you know the problem of being self-centered. If you're married, and you know the problem of being self-centered. 
There's the problem of what happens when you get one self-centered person who's living the delusion that the whole world revolves around them and they come into contact with another self-centered person who's also living the delusion that everything exists to serve them and then they come into contact with one another and there's conflict there, isn't there? It starts off with confusion. We're wondering, why isn't this person doing what I want? What's wrong with them? But that that confusion, it grows into anger, it grows into conflict, until at some point one wins and the other loses. You see, self-centeredness only leads to conflict. That's the first problem, but there's a way bigger problem. Self-centeredness leads to us missing the real reason we're here. It leads to us missing the entire reason for our existence. Loved ones, you are not made for yourself. And that is the most liberating truth you could ever know. You are not made for yourself. Don't look at yourself. Don't worry about yourself. Don't spend all your time and your energy obsessed with yourself. Look at him. Look at Jesus. Look at him each morning and be reminded that the reason you exist is to bring him glory by enjoying him forever. Look look at him when life is going well and be reminded that everything you have is a gracious gift from him. Look at him when you're suffering. Look at him and take comfort in the fact that he suffered so that you could live a life one day where there will be no suffering. Friends, look at him when you're feeling complacent and remember that you are so sinful that it took the Son of God dying for you to deal with your sin. Look at him when you fail and remember that there is no sin that Jesus will not forgive. There is nothing that you have done that makes you too far gone, too sinful, for Jesus. Friends, my hope for you this morning is that you will look and keep looking at Jesus. But as I am so clearly reminded every morning when I tell my son to go and find his shoes, it is one thing to look, it is quite another thing to see. Because you see, John the Baptist shows us what we're looking at. He shows us that Jesus is the one that God sent to take away the sin of the world. John shows us that Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah who would would heal God's people by dying for them. John shows us that Jesus is the Messiah, the chosen one of God. He shows that to everyone he meets. People looked, but not everyone saw. And so you see, the thing that makes John the Baptist so great is not just that he showed us what to look for, the thing that makes John the Baptist so great is that he shows us what it really means to see. When John saw Jesus for who he is, the chosen one of God, what did John do? He humbled himself. He made himself nothing. He didn't claim any glory for himself, even though people wanted to give it to him, he could have. He was great. Jesus said he was great. But John didn't do that. What did he say? He said, I'm not even even worthy to untie his sandals. That was the job that a disciple 
would never be allowed to do. It was too demeaning for any servant to do. And John says, I'm not even good enough to do it for Jesus. He humbled himself. He made himself nothing. And the thing that makes John the Baptist so great is that instead of making the world revolve around him, he made his life revolve around Jesus. Everything he did, he did to magnify Jesus. Every breath he had, he used to testify to Jesus. His mission in life, the thing that got him out of bed in the morning, was to show everyone just how good Jesus is. And so he looked, he saw, and he testified. And so friends, if you want to be great... You don't need to be good at boxing or basketball or tennis. You don't become great by having people recognise your gifts or your talents or your achievements. You don't become great by having people look at you at all. The way to be great, the reason John the Baptist is great, the way for you and I to be great is to devote ourselves, to be obsessed with, to look at the one who is greatest of all. And so, brothers and sisters, it's my hope and my prayer for you this morning that he will be the one that you revolve your life around. Look at Jesus, see who he is, and humble yourself so that he might be magnified. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for the witness of John the Baptist the one who could have claimed glory for himself, the one who Jesus called great and yet who humbled himself because he recognized the one who is greater lord would you help us to recognize just how great jesus is just how worthy of our worship and our devotion he is may you keep us from living in the delusion that life is about us and that our lives are here to serve our needs Sink within us that, that liberating truth that the reason we exist, the reason everything exists is to bring glory to the one who came to take away the sin of the world. Show us how good it is to live for him. Show us how worthy he is of our devotion. And Lord, would you give us the strength to make our lives revolve around him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.